Demi Moore was one of the hottest celebrities of the 80s, 90s and noughties. But the road to stardom and the heartbreaks along the way may surprise even her biggest fans. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hi. We are doing a three-part series on Demi Moore and the biggest hurdles in her personal life along the way. Of course, Zara, including Ashton Kutcher. Well, we actually have to be honest with the listeners. We went into this scandal series and wanted to do a series on Demi Moore and Ashton Kutcher. I feel like for a lot of people, they were quite a nostalgic couple in the mm. noughties. I felt like there was a bit of drama there, but I couldn't quite remember what it was. Yeah. And so that was the aim of the game. And then when Eilish, our researcher, started diving in, it became very clear that there was far more to Demi Moore's story than I ever certainly ever realized. Yeah, I think we both at the age of 29 maybe missed Demi Moore's peak of her fame. We missed the peak of her celebrity. But I know from speaking to my mom and other people of that generation, Demi Moore was it. And it wasn't until we actually researched this with Eilish that we realized why she was it and how big she actually was. Yeah, I actually have to be honest. I think this is one, if not my favorite ah. scandal series we've ever researched. Mm. I think because it surprised me so much, it completely took me off guard. It's definitely heartbreaking in parts. Mm. And I do want to put a trigger warning there that this will touch on sexual assault, suicide and addiction. Mm. There's a lot of really tricky parts to it. But the way that Demi Moore has been able to move through a lot of this stuff is completely remarkable. Then, of course, you've got the celebrity element and <laughs> how famous she was and how famous her relationships were. Yes. I've just been completely blown away by this. Same. I also want to put on the record, I know a lot of Americans say Demi oh, Moore. We will be saying Demi. Demi. It just, it might feel slightly unnatural for me to keep calling her Demi more. <laughs> and also if we tried to do Demi, I just know we'd end up doing 50% of them Demi anyway. So we're sticking to Demi more. I know some of you will want to hear Demi. Just say it in your own head. We all know who we're talking about. <laughs> Shall we jump right in? We are going to rewind all the way back to 1962. All right, guys. So on November 11, 1962, Demi Jean Gwines was born to her 18-year-old mother, Virginia. Now, Demi's birth father was a pilot named Charles Harmon Sr., but he left Virginia after just two months of marriage before Demi was even born. Yeah, so when Demi was three months old, her mum actually married the man that Demi always considered her father for all intents and purposes. He was a guy called Dan Gwines, a salesman who frequently changed jobs. And together, Virginia and Dan had Morgan, Demi's younger half-brother. An 18-year-old mother, this was like very, very young yeah. for Demi's mum for sure. Now, her childhood was troubled to say the least. She wrote about her early life at length in her autobiography, Inside Out. We'll be quoting Inside Out a lot throughout these episodes. Writing about her mother, Demi explained my mother was a teenager who weighed 100 pounds when she got pregnant with me just out of high school really she was a little girl there was a part of her that did not really ground in reality she didn't seem like other mums now, as I mentioned, Demi's father was a newspaper salesman and in her words, a charming gambler, the kind of guy who was always riding the edge 
always getting away with something. Mm. Interesting way to describe your dad and certainly I think sets it up for the listeners about perhaps where this is going to go. Mm. Now, Virginia and Dan, according to Demi, had a pretty tumultuous relationship and by all accounts were quite chaotic people. Demi wrote in her book, so much of my parents' energy was focused on self-sabotage or sabotaging each other. Mm. Also in her memoir, Demi recalled moving countless times throughout these years. Her parents were constantly on the run from debt collectors. They were also breaking up, hooking up with other people and then getting back together on repeat. Demi wrote, it was easy to disappear in the 1970s. My dad had made it something of a specialty. She went on, for most people, moving is a big deal. It required a lot of thought, preparation and planning. That's not how it was for us. My brother and I have calculated that throughout our childhoods, we attended at least two new schools a year often more than that. Yeah. Now, throughout her childhood, Demi was hospitalized several times for a serious condition called kidney nephrosis. In the years later, she would actually theorize, Mish, that flare-ups of this condition were caused by the stress and the trauma of her childhood at the time. Yeah. Well, what we haven't said yet is that both of Demi's parents suffered with significant substance abuse issues. Her mother in particular suffered from bouts of poor mental health, which resulted in one particularly traumatic incident for Demi when she was 12 years old. In her memoir, she wrote, I woke up to the sound of distressed voices and commotion. I stumbled into my parents' room where I found my mother thrashing and crying as my father struggled to hold her down. By the bed, I saw a bottle of yellow pills. Help me, he screamed when he noticed me in their doorway. She went on, I walked to them in a trance, not knowing, but on another level, understanding completely what I was witnessing. My mother was trying to kill herself. The next thing I remember is using my fingers, the small fingers of a child, to dig the pills my mother had tried to swallow out of her mouth, or my father held it open and told me what to do. Something very deep inside of me shifted then and never shifted back. My childhood was over. In any sense, I could count on either of my parents evaporated. In that moment, with my fingers in the mouth of my suicidal mother, I moved from being someone that my parents at least tried to take care of to someone they expected to assist them in cleaning up their messes. <sighs> that has to be one of the most awful stories we have unearthed doing scandal. Yeah, without a doubt. Like your heart actually breaks thinking of any 12-year-old kid, anyone ever mm. having to do that, but to be such a small child mm. and to not be shielded from how ugly the world is at that age feels unfathomable to me, truly. I also feel really sorry for Demi because she was also the older sister to her little brother. And of course, that's not her little brother's fault, but no. that's a lot to then take on, I think, when you are a child in this situation, but then also the oldest child in a situation like this, you carry so much, like it just absolutely breaks your heart. By the time Demi was 13 years old, she had started smoking, partying at clubs and driving her parents' car around by herself. According to Demi, her parents actually knew about all of it. She wrote, I was regularly assigned to run family errands in that car. It was convenient for my parents and one more way of seeing what they could get away with. Around this time, Demi's parents were slipping even further off the rails. She wrote, My parents didn't set boundaries for me because they couldn't even set them for themselves. They were drinking more than ever and taking Percodin, Valium and Quaaludes that my father somehow obtained prescriptions for and filled different drugstores using all my parents' various aliases. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that Demi was raised with the belief 
that Dan was her biological father. Mm. One day when she was 13 years old, she got home from school and realised her father and brother were nowhere to be found, right? Yeah. When Demi asked her mother about this, her mother replied, your father and I are getting a divorce and he'd only consent if I gave him Morgan. Now, as part of all of this, Zara, she actually found out that Dan wasn't her biological dad. After going through the family document safe, Demi found out that Virginia and Dan had gotten married after she was born. When she was recounting this discovery to a friend in the backseat of the car on the way to visit her father and brother, Demi asked her mother point blank, is he my real father? To which her mother replied, who told you that? As it turned out, everyone except Demi knew that Dan wasn't her biological father, all her family, all her cousins. And reflecting on this revelation, she wrote in her memoir, My mother seemed high on the drama of the situation, the power it had given her to hurt Dan. Nobody asked me if I was okay or if I had any questions. Neither of my parents seemed to care what this revelation meant to me. I got in the car and took off. So not only is she dealing with the fallout of her family, right? She's been separated from her dad and her brother. The family's been sliced in half. So weird, by the way, to say, oh, we'd only get this divorce if I gave your father your brother. Brother. Well, yeah, very odd anyway. Yeah. You're dealing with the fallout of that and just as equally dealing with the fallout of realising that the dad you thought was your dad is not your dad. I mean, as we said, for all intents and purposes, your dad, but not your biological dad. And clearly on some level, I mean, it's my interpretation of this, Dan wanted his biological child. Yes, In the divorce, he goes, I, I want that. my biological son. That's how I'm going to divorce you. And what? So Demi's just then left because she's not your biological daughter. You didn't want her as much? Well, that's the inference from those quotes. I don't know if we can say that's bad. That's my interpretation. <laughs> I agree. It can be up for yeah, debate. For sure. Now, she did meet her biological father, but never really had a strong relationship with him at all. So Demi was essentially abandoned by the two men in her life who should have been there for her. Yeah, exactly. So fast forward a couple of years and Demi and her mother are living in West Hollywood together. The family has been split up, as we mentioned. And Demi and her mum meet a man in his mid-40s while they were out to eat at a restaurant one evening. Her mum becomes friends with this guy before encouraging Demi to have a relationship with him too. And then the story gets really weird and dark. Yeah, and she's 15 at this point in the timeline as well. Demi went to have lunch one-on-one with this man. He also started to show up at her school waiting for her at the end of the day's classes. Yeah, now she says she didn't question any of his behaviour at the time, nor did she have much sense at all about what the relationship actually was. Mm. She did admit to feeling uneasy around him sometimes and would make excuses to avoid him, but being 15 and just having this random guy into your life Mm. and start to have one-on-one meetings with you would be incredibly confusing and also like you don't know yourself at 15 how are you supposed to be assertive with a fully grown man absolutely that you met through your mother yeah that your mother has set you up with now as per her memoir inside out one day when i got home from school he was there inside the apartment waiting for me i blotted out the exact series of events the details that led to feeling trapped in my own home with a man three times my age and twice my size to him raping me i was an easy mark for a predator and I had nobody to protect me. I think what might be worth noting here is that this seems so deeply sad and tragic, but also just completely unusual. Like I'm struggling in my head to figure out the series of events that leads a child to be in a situation like this. Like how many times was she failed by adults to end up here? 
Completely. I think that double-pronged thing of this being one of the most traumatic things a young kid could go through, but also for people who probably didn't have complicated childhoods to look at this and think about the complete randomness of it. Mm. Like it is, as you say, deeply unusual. But also I guess it does feel in line with the chaos and the trauma of her childhood. Like this was the stuff that her parents didn't protect her from. And to be honest, maybe the opposite. Mm. This was the stuff that her parents put her in. Encouraged. Yeah. Now, you may be wondering, where was Demi's mother during all of this? Well, Demi didn't tell her mum what happened, so this man continued to be a friend to her despite the sexual assault. He actually even turned up one day soon after to help them move out of their apartment or where they were living and move somewhere else. In a brief moment where the man and Demi were alone together during this particular moving day, He said to her, how does it feel to be whored out by your mother for $500? Yeah, as Demi wrote in Inside Out, I will never know if my mother accepted $500 from this man explicitly as a payment for permission to fuck me. Perhaps it was murkier than that. Perhaps he gave her some money under the pretense of helping a friend alone a deposit for the new apartment. For all I know, she'd already paid him back by having sex with him herself. But what is certain is that she gave this man the key to the apartment she shared with her 15-year-old daughter. I've mothered three 15-year-old girls. The idea of giving a grown man with dubious intentions unsupervised access to them is as inconceivable to me as it is repugnant that is a brilliant way of putting it and it's it would be so hard as well to wrangle with the worst case scenario like what happens if her mum not only gave this man access to her but also accepted money for her being sexually assaulted and never knowing that having no closure on Mm. whether that actually happened or not and having to make peace with the fact that you won't know Mm. all you can know is that she didn't protect you and that's kind of your only job as a parent right yeah 100 in 1978 so at this point in the timeline demi is 16 years old she dropped out of high school her parents didn't mind and she picked up work at a local call center for a debt collection agency her first exposure to acting zara was around this time and it was via a friend yeah it was so it turned out that demi and her mom were actually living in the same apartment complex as an aspiring german actress a 17 year old called natasia kinski now at the time natasia's ability to read english was not quite as good as her ability to speak it so she enlisted her young neighbor demi to read scripts aloud to her so that she could memorize her lines now it's kind of amazing but for context for those who maybe have heard the name natasia kinski but want to know why it rings a bell <laughs> she actually would go on to star in the film Tess, which won three Academy Awards. Yeah, not too bad. Now, speaking about Natasia to Vanity Fair years later, Demi said she was a 17-year-old German actress brought to this country with her mother. We lived in the same apartment building. Our mothers were both divorced. Anyway, he was this creature I thought had everything. It's not that she lived in a grand apartment. It's that people liked and were interested in her. She knew where she was going. And I said, that's what I want. Inspired by Natasia, Demi actually began taking drama lessons around this time, but it would be a little bit before she got properly into acting. Before we get to that, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. All 
All right, Zara. So around this time, Demi met Freddie Moore, a musician who was 12 years her senior. So for context, this was a 16-year-old Demi dating a 28-year-old Freddie. Speaking to Vanity Fair, Demi confirmed that he was actually married when they met, but said, I met him and I liked what I saw. I wanted him. As anybody who's had a relationship with a married man knows, there's a great adrenaline rush with it. I didn't think about the consequences. I was a different person. I messed with people's lives. I feel bad if I hurt them, but I was just trying to figure it all out myself. That is a lot of ownership to take for a 16-year-old in a relationship with a man who's Almost twice her age. Yeah, 1,000%. He's the one that's married. And I know. It's like, of course, it's messing with people's lives. But you're still a teenager who's been through a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bunch of ownership to take. You're totally right. For the record, these two actually did end up getting married later in the timeline, but we'll come to that Mm. when it fits in with the story. Now, according to Demi, Freddie's manager had warned him that she might just be dating him for his money, which, for the record, Demi says is not only not true, but the Freddie also didn't have any money in the first place. Kind of savage. By this point, Demi had left her job at that debt collection agency. So to prove herself, she set out to find some new work. Yeah. In her own words, when a friend I'd met through the music scene told me about a guy she knew who took nude photos and sold them to magazines in Japan, I was curious. Nobody sees them here and you can make some money, she told me. Just lie about your age. And I went for it. The photos ended up being semi-nude. Not that that really makes it any better because we need to keep in mind, Demi was only 16 years old when she was posing for these photos. But they were, for better or worse, popular enough that they led to more and more work for Demi as a nude model. Yeah, she posed again for Wee magazine, which was essentially a French playboy. She did that semi-nude as well. And on the back of this shoot, she signed a deal with Elite Model Management. Now, according to Demi's memoir, the agency knew she was underage, which meant that she had to sign a release form for the semi-nude shots and wasn't allowed to do anything more than semi-nude. Mm. Um, what about no nude? Yeah. Also, she had to sign a release form. You're, you're getting the teenager, the 16-year-old, <laughs> to sign the release form. It sounds like they're doing the bare, bare minimum to try and be <sighs> keep everything above board. This would never fly in 2023. No. no. From there, Demi did some small-time modelling jobs. Nothing major, but certainly enough to pay her way. Around this time, though, her father, Dan, became very unwell. After trying to drive himself to the hospital but passing out at the will before he could get there, Dan was given the diagnosis of an alcoholic with pancreatitis. Dan was still living with Demi's little brother, a then 12-year-old Morgan at the time. According to Demi, everything Dan was told not to do, he did in spades. He was slowly trying to kill himself. He told me so many times that he wanted to die. Roughly a year after his diagnosis, Dan committed suicide. He was 36 years old and 13-year-old Morgan was the person who found him. According to Demi, her father's funeral was a total nightmare. She said, Instead of shared grief, there were warring camps. My dad's family and my mum. My dad's eight siblings were convinced that my mum was somehow to blame for his death. There were various theories ranging from speculation that she had driven him to it to the idea that she left him drunk in his car knowing what would happen. 
all the way up to the suspicion of out-and-out foul play with my dad's family threatening to turn my mum into the police. It got very, very ugly. Yeah, Demi continued, it felt like my dad's family's anger at my mother was spilling out onto me as if I was an extension of her. Everybody knew that Dan wasn't my biological father and suddenly it felt like that mattered enormously. I felt unwelcome and uncomfortable. So to check in with the timeline, Dan died in October 1980. Demi turned 18 the month after, and she and Freddie married the following February in 1981. Of that, in her memoir, she wrote, It was obviously a confusing and fraught time, and our wedding reflected the scattershot nature of the decision. It was at some little Spanish church in LA. I can't remember where. It's so much to go through before you're even a legal adult. Isn't oh, it? Like, and to be with the guy that started dating you at 16. 16. It's just, it's hard to read. Despite her family falling apart, Demi's career had really started to take off. She had some more modeling jobs this time in New York City, and she continued to do some acting classes and auditions on the side. Her big moment actually arrived when she successfully auditioned for General Hospital, a long-running US soap in 1982. Yeah, you might be wondering, how did Demi go from small modeling jobs to acting on a sitcom and suddenly becoming famous well it was a bit of a combination of being in the right place at the right time with genuine talent but it's also worth noting that things weren't easy even when Demi started landing high profile gigs yeah the sheer amount of episodes that General Hospital produced and the quick turnaround from when the scripts were delivered to actors to when they were expected to have their lines memorized put immense pressure on then 20 year old Demi she actually began drinking heavily to deal with the stress of the job sometimes even during the day while at work mm, reflecting on her relationship with alcohol at this time she wrote it felt too out of control too much like my parents i knew that alcohol was moving me in their direction instead of into the future i envisioned for myself you could so see how oh, i mean you've sure. grown up with two addicts in absolutely. your household of course this is going to be a massive risk for someone like demi yeah absolutely so she quit drinking cold turkey but it was an addiction that would continue to haunt her in the coming years and her career, for the record, was quite a slow burn. She was on General Hospital for several years and then sort of worked her way up slowly but surely into major film roles. One of those roles was alongside Michael Caine in a film called Blame It on Rio in 1983. And it was on set in Brazil that Demi turned to cocaine. While she managed to avoid alcohol during this time, she said she did so much cocaine during this period that she nearly, and I quote, blew a hole through her nostrils. Mm, there was so much partying going on during the filming of Blame It on Rio and so much cocaine going around that Demi and her roommate ended up sleeping together. Now, keep in mind, she was married to Freddie during this time. When she returned to America, she came clean to Freddie about sleeping with her roommate and they got a divorce in 1983 when she was just 20 years old. Yeah, after the divorce, she moved to a small LA apartment by herself and continued to use cocaine regularly. As she wrote in Inside Out, my appetite for cocaine had escalated into a dependency. And though I would never have called myself an addict, that's what I'd become. Mm. Now, on the set of a film called St. Elmo's Fire, a coming-of-age movie that Demi was shooting at the time, the director, a guy named Joel Schumacher, made a point to call Demi out in front of the entire cast, telling her that if he called 
caught her having even one beer that she would be fired. Mm. Although she felt demeaned by this call out in front of her peers, Demi knew that she had a substance abuse problem. A friend of hers at the time set her up with an appointment at a rehab facility when she was just 21. She wrote in Inside Out, when their head of admission told me their program lasted 30 days, I was aghast. 30 days? That was just impossible. We were starting to film St. Elmo's Fire in just 16 days. She asked me, what's more important, the film or your life? The film, I told her, and I meant it. Wow. Now the film's team, the rehab clinic and Demi all agreed that she could leave rehab after 15 days as long as she had completed everything on the discharge checklist, which would normally take... 30 days, as we said. Doesn't really feel like the kind of thing you can rush, but... No, they also agreed that Demi would be accompanied by a drug counsellor 24-7 while filming the movie, mm. which does seem like something that I guess would be helpful. Mm. So the plan was that she could do the movie and get sober, and she did for a time. Yeah, director Joel Schumacher told Vanity Fair, in 24 hours, this young woman turned her life around. It was an extraordinary, mature step in a very fragile life. Okay, so we're going to fast forward a little bit through the next few years of Demi's career. So stay with us. By 1984, she had left General Hospital after a stint of two years on the show. And then in 1985, when she was 23, she started dating fellow actor Emilio Estevez. They got engaged to Zara after dating for less than a year. Yeah, now the relationship didn't work out. And by 1986, she was actually single once again. Her career was absolutely taking off by this point. She had starred in several major films and by 1986, she was actually starring in an off-Broadway play. She was also maintaining her sobriety and things were looking really good. Mm. And she was also just about to meet her next husband, Mish, and the father of her children. Yeah, Demi Moore met Bruce Willis at a party in July 1987 and things moved quickly. I think things tend to move pretty quickly in Demi Moore's romantic relationships. At the time, Demi said that Bruce was just so ready to to embrace and give me love. So, Zara, who was Bruce Willis at this time? Well, when he met Demi Moore, he was a 32-year-old actor who had kind of just hit his stride on the television show Moonlighting. He had also just landed his first major film role as the lead in Blind Date. But that was not all. It was actually around this time when Bruce and Demi met that he had started working on the very first Die Hard film, the franchise that would go on to make billions of dollars and make him a like bona fide A-list actor. Yeah, billions with a B. <laughs> so in other words, when Bruce Willis met Demi Moore, he was right on the cusp of becoming one of the biggest celebrities in the world. Now, this moved very quickly. In November 1987, the couple married just four months after they started dating at a spur-of-the-moment wedding in Las Vegas. Demi reflected on the spontaneity of the wedding, saying, we were moving to the gambling tables when Bruce said, I think we should get married. We'd been joking about it on the flight there, but suddenly it didn't seem like he was kidding. Mm. Demi was 25 years old, Bruce was 32, and People magazine loudly announced that they were Hollywood's hottest couple. I love these two. Like, I really do love them, but what's the rush? Why do we need <laughs> to get married four months in? Speaking to People at the time, Bruce said, I tell you, I've been blessed by God that I met Demi. I was a cynic myself. I wasn't looking for the kind of love I found with her. What we have for each other is a very rare thing. In keeping with the kind of speedy nature of their relationship, Demi and Bruce became parents less than a year into their marriage. In August 1988, Demi gave birth to her first child, Rumor Willis. Yeah. So she was pregnant when they got 
engaged. Yes. Or they got married. Well, they, they weren't even, really they engaged. engaged. I love when you're like, what's the rush? And it's like, well, some people like to be married when they have the baby. You yeah. don't have to. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> some people just like that. Now, Bruce and Demi were really loving and dedicated parents. As per reports at the time, they would really alternate projects and plan out their roster so that one of them could always be at home with the baby at all times. That was no small feat given both parents were A-list actors. In 1990, Demi's career reached astronomical new heights when she starred in the blockbuster drama Ghost alongside Patrick Swayze. Of course, this film gave us that now iconic pottery scene, the one to Unchained Melody, which I feel like might be one of the most iconic movie moments ever. Yeah, it would certainly be up there. Listeners will be happy to know I have seen this film. Oh, go girl. I have seen this scene as well. Now, Ghost was definitely her most memorable role. Reviews of the film were a bit mixed with many critics questioning the film's flimsy supernatural <laughs> logic and two-hour runtime, which is so funny to think that a movie that was over two hours... Was w- so long back then. Was too long for this kind of you know, storyline. But now every movie is over two hours. So many films being released this, I mean, I say this summer because I'm thinking of like the American summer and all the promotional material. So many of them are almost three. Yeah. Yeah. This did, I do have to agree, kind of a flimsy supernatural logic, (laughs) but I didn't mind it. Now, at the time, the New York Times published, Miss Moore combines toughness and delicacy most attractively, but the story requires her to look terminally wistful much of the time. (laughs) Now, despite the kind of, you know, middling reviews, Ghost was the highest grossing film of 1990, which is such a feat. It made over $217 million upon release against to $23 million budget. So someone made a bucket load of money off that film. It was also nominated for a handful of Academy Awards and won two. Demi was also nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance. I really hope in her contract she had a clause that she would get royalties for like the success of the film. Yeah, I know, 100%. Now, of course, Ghost being as massive as it was sparked even more public interest in Demi. By 1991, after Ghost's mammoth success, she was profiled for a front page feature in Vanity Fair. Yeah, by this time she was heavily pregnant with her second baby and rumor was nearly three years old the blurb for the story read everything's happening at once for demi moore she's expecting her second child with husband bruce willis and nudging his megastar bucks with her own 2.5 million dollar fee everyone's waiting to see if her new movie the butcher's wife will make her more than the one hit wonder of ghost Bit of a mean blurb, (laughs) if I'm actually going to be honest. Now, the story itself was not necessarily a source of controversy at the time, but the magazine's cover image definitely was. Mm. I am betting my bottom dollar that most of you know exactly the photo I am talking about. Now, the photograph taken by Annie Leibovitz featured on the cover of the August 1991 issue had 28-year-old Demi naked and heavily pregnant. Now, she's got her arms sort of draped artfully around her body, so it's not like full frontal nudity no it's quite tasteful but it was scandalous at the time the story is also very cheekily headlined more demi more yeah it's so funny to me that this photo was such a scandal because i feel like this is 50 percent of pregnancy announcements on instagram these days yeah you're so right now this photo was so significant because no megastar had ever posed naked and pregnant on the front of a magazine before in fact according to vanity fair's editor at the time tina brown the naked photos were actually intended to only be for bruce and demi originally yeah as per cnbc annie leibovitz was commissioned by brown to shoot the then 28 year old moore in a tight dress that would show her bump 
At the time, if a movie star was pregnant, she would only be shot from the chest upwards. But Brown had just had her second child herself and was feeling rebellious. So when Leibovitz came back with the pictures, they were as briefed with more in this like tight dress, as they discussed. Tina Brown, though, recalled Annie telling her, but there is this other picture that I took, but I really did it just for Demi and Bruce. Tina went on, and I said, well, show me it. And then I saw the picture of Demi naked and pregnant in all her glory, and I said, Annie, we just have to have this for the cover. This is the cover. Leibovitz called Moore to ask her if they could use the shot, and she agreed. However, not all retailers were in agreement. In fact, Walmart told Vanity Fair they would not have a naked and pregnant Demi Moore on display in their stores. Tina Brown was quoted saying, on no account would they have this cover. It was just indecent. It wasn't going to happen. The New York Times even reported on the issue at the time, saying the magazine appeared on New York City newsstands yesterday. Elsewhere, the cover is dressed in a white envelope with the words, More Demi Moore. Only Miss Moore's eyes appear above the envelope. (laughs) Tina Brown said, When our circulation director realised we were doing this pregnant cover, he went to discuss it with news dealers. He was told that dealers outside New York would not take the magazine if it was not wrapped. Yeah, the report continued. Miss Brown said that the chairman of Condé Nast Publications loved the cover and was willing to risk a potential loss of up to 40,000 sales. In Grand Central Terminal, 500 copies of the undressed cover were sold in the morning rush. Miss Brown described the cover as anti-Hollywood, anti-glitz, a new young movie star willing to say, I look pregnant and I'm not ashamed of it. This is wild to think that this was so controversial. I'm obsessed with the fact that people at Condé Nast who were high up were willing to do it, Mm. even if they didn't sell that many copies, knowing that I'm not going to pretend it was some sort of altruistic thing that they wanted to do that's better for the world. Mm. But they thought it was a good marketing decision, that it would generate buzz and make the magazine feel even edgier at a time when Vanity Fair was considered pretty edgy. It's also really interesting... And sad to consider that pregnancy used to be seen as something that was untasteful. Like we simply cannot see a naked, like naked women everywhere, all over magazines all the time. Naked pregnant women, no way. Must hide. So untasteful. We need to put it in an envelope. So strange. Now, as per the 1992 academic paper, Shooting the Mother, that kind of looked back on this, the cover provoked the most intense controversy in Vanity Fair's history. 95 television spots, 64 radio shows, 1,500 newspaper articles and a dozen cartoons. Some stores and newsstands refused to carry the August issue, while others modestly concealed it in the brown wrapper evocative of porn magazines. Nevertheless, the cover displayed no more skin than magazines like Allure, Cosmopolitan and Vogue do on a regular basis. What repelled and shocked viewers, obviously, was the vast expanse of a white pregnant belly. Mm, Indeed, the magazine cover clearly connected with a lot of people because despite... A lot of the editions being wrapped up or maybe even because because they were wrapped up and people were intrigued. Vanity Fair sold a record 1.2 million copies of their August 1991 magazine, which was significantly up from their regular rotation. They typically sold 800,000 magazines every month. So they had an additional 400,000 customers. Pretty good. Looking back on the cover 
of herself in conversation with Naomi Campbell recently, Demi said, I remember the cover very well. I understand what impact it had on the world, on women, on our permission to embrace ourselves in a pregnant state. But it was a moment that I was taking to really be in myself and be expressing myself and not trying to be anything other than me. Mm, Tina Brown, that former editor of Vanity Fair, also said years later, stars who are pregnant since all want to do that Demi Moore shot. Just recently, you saw the cover of Vanity Fair with Serena Williams pregnant and naked on the cover because pregnant stars want to say my rite of passage I get to do my own Demi Moore cover I am obsessed (laughs) I am absolutely obsessed with this now it is worth noting that while Demi was really proud of that cover photo she was not a fan of the accompanying story (laughs) that went with it and as for Demi's life well everything she knew was about to change including her marriage but we're going to get to why she didn't like that story and what was about to happen to her marriage in the next episode of Scandal. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for this first episode. If you want to listen to those next two in our three-part series, they are live for Shane Moore subscribers. Check out our show notes where you can click a link and subscribe to that now. We also do bonus monthly content for Shane Moore subscribers, Zara. Yeah, exactly. Misha's right. You can listen to it right now if you really want to. Thank you so much, as always, to our researcher, Eilish Gilligan. If you want to come and find us on socials, we'll be on Instagram at Shameless Podcast, TikTok at Shameless underscore podcast. There will be some very nostalgic photos, particularly up on Instagram, including (laughs) the cover we just spoke of. And we'll be back in your ears on Thursday. We will be. Bye, guys. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hi guys, Shameless Media's video producer Charlotte here. I'm abruptly popping up at the end of this episode to tell you about a new series I've been working on called The Tastemakers. It lives on the Shameless Book Club feed and the series explores the inspiration and motivation of Australia's most trusted tastemakers. Hosted by the wonderful Gemma Diamond and spanning across six episodes, we'll hear about everything from beauty to lifestyle and food. One of my favourite episodes to film was with Maggie Zhao. She's such a bookworm and she offered up some really interesting in-depth insights that I really loved. It's so good to see Gemma and Maggie sit down and talk about books and they just had such a fantastic chemistry on the day that when we were shooting, I just knew that this was a good episode. Oh my God. So do you know how we talk about social media and it's like, yeah, like an overnight success, like this person, you know, overnight literally gained a million followers, right? So think of that and now think of the opposite of that. (laughs) And that is me. Tastemakers is made for anybody who is looking for a slice of inspiration from influential women who are ready to offer up their expertise. Search for The Shameless Book Club in your favourite podcast app now, have a listen and make sure to click follow so you don't miss your next favourite episode.